As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hi there, hello, welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me as ever, Tom Warville and Michael Cox. We have for you today what I consider to be a nice mixed grill of a podcast. We'll start with a a quick chat about the big game of the weekend in the Premier League, spin off into a wider discussion about a growing tactical trend at the top of the Premier League. And then we'll make use of Tom Warville's long lens with some young players to watch from across Europe. How are you, Tom? How is that lens? Good, thanks, Ali. Yep. I'm not going to mention the lens. Uh, yeah, really good. Enjoyed a good weekend of of, uh, of football, especially the the second half of the Liverpool Man City game. Mm. Um, and yeah, all all in all, good. And it just seems a shame again that we've got another international break upon us, just as the domestic season was getting up and running. But uh, that's what happens. Plenty of good stuff in leagues one and two this weekend. This is not a. It's not the end of club football for the next two weeks, and I don't want anyone to make that uh, point. Michael, you had a busy weekend. All eyes on Anfield on Sunday, but in the flesh at two separate games on Saturday. Your big plan came to fruition uh, at Kings Meadow and then at Stamford Bridge. Tell us about that. Yeah, I did the Chelsea women and Chelsea men double. Both sides won three one. Kind of similar games actually in that respect. Both teams playing a similar system now, actually, this season, 3-4-3. So, yeah, it was quite fun. There was a few people doing the same. I noticed uh, as soon as Bethany England scored Chelsea women's third with about 10 minutes to go, I went for the early train from uh, Norberton to make sure we were there in time for kickoff. I like the idea of you walking at the front of the pack with your arm up, just everyone following Michael to the bridge. Yeah, I actually, uh, en route, changed my plan and got the bus to uh, another station and then got a slightly quicker train. But <laughs> as, if you're being, local... as if you're being tailed. Yeah, well, that's just local knowledge for you, you know. Um, gone to Kings Meadow many times before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was a fun day. It worked out quite nicely. And um, I, I maybe more, it, it was torrential rain mm-hmm. on Saturday. And I think maybe there was some people who might have fancied doing the same, but were kind of put off by that weather because I did get absolutely soaked to be fair fair weather fans there's literally a word for that Uh, (laughs) hey what are the the tactical similarities and I suppose the nuances within those two systems Tuchel's Chelsea and Hayes's Chelsea yeah it's quite interesting to observe I mean I don't think there's any evidence that 
Hayes has directly been inspired by Tuchel. But at the same time, when you look at the job he's done since he took over, surely every coach in England will have been sitting up and taking notice and, and having a look at what he's done. So, I mean, it's a bit of a surprise considering Chelsea won the league last year. They got to the Champions League final. It's quite a dramatic switch. Um, I think the most interesting thing about this, and maybe I can make an appeal to our podcast listeners for any similar examples, is Chelsea playing a back three. Last year, their two centre-backs were Magdalena Eriksson to the left and Millie Bright to the right. But the, one of the full-backs from last year, well, she often played full-back, she's definitely not centre-back, she's more of a midfielder, Jess Carter is now playing between the other centre-backs, mm. which I think seems very rare. I mean, it's the equivalent of them putting, you know, as Piliqueta between, say, Rudiger and Thiago Silva. It just, it just feels really and weird. And does she, does she sweep up behind the back line or does she step into midfield in possession? A little bit, but without possession, she's sweeping up and she's she's quite good at distributing the ball forward. I'd say probably not as good as the other two, actually, although they're quite good at playing diagonals, so maybe it makes sense for them to be in the wider positions. Actually, I think in the first game against Arsenal, it was bright in the centre of the three, and now they've moved her to the right. But yeah, I'm just intrigued by how Carter's gone from being a midfielder to a full-back to the centre of three defenders, uh, between t- very much two obvious centre-backs. I just haven't seen anything like it before. It feels like maybe kind of a Syria club in the 1990s might have done some something similar when they were like specialist sweepers who mm. would maybe be a bit more technical. But if anyone has any examples, I'd be very interested to know. One of the notable things about Tuchel's Chelsea on Saturday was the presence of quite a few players that I would consider to be fringe players. Chelsea under Tuchel have mostly been fortunate with injuries and certainly in the second half of last season, there was a, a pretty core squad of what, 14, 15 players. But on Saturday, we saw Trevor Chalobah score his second Premier League goal of the season. Uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek flicked it on for him to score from that set piece and played in midfield. Hudson-Odoi played on the left of the front three. Uh, and Ross Barkley came on and played a, a lovely little raked ball over to Aspilicueta in the build-up to the third goal. Which of those fringe players stood out to you which might have impressed Tuchel none of these guys felt hugely likely to be starting a lot of games I would suggest uh, for this Chelsea side at the start of the season Uh, but who knows now players can play themselves into contention yeah you're right I think Hudson Odoi is probably the most threatening I thought he was maybe Chelsea's best player in the first half playing wide on the left Um, there's just so much competition for places in you know in the in the front three for Chelsea but it was clear that for this game Tuchel wanted someone playing very much out wide rather than drifting inside. And he played as a yeah, very wide winger. Um, and Chalabar has, has barely put a foot wrong, you know, when he's received opportunities this year. So certainly I think positive for him. Loftus-Cheek, I've never particularly got Loftus-Cheek, I must say. I, I think if you're going to give him an opportunity, it did make sense for this game because we know that Southampton press very high, press very effectively at times. And he's very good at turning away from pressure and kind of drifting into attack. But, I often think his his final ball is a little bit lacking. I was quite surprised. I watched the game and then I watched Match of the Day in, in the evening and Ian Wright really highlighted Loftus-Cheek as someone who he thought was was outstanding on the day, but I, I must confess I, I didn't really see that. Um, and they've got lots of other options in that position, including Barkley, who, who like you say, um, I gather was... I didn't see this game, but uh, I gather was decent against Juventus when he got a chance. And uh, yeah, the, the pass for Azpilicueta is fantastic, but I also thought that... The ball across from Azpilicueta, mm. I think it's quite hard to catch that on the half volley and balloon it up, but it was just solidly along the floor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 
both uh, two good games. It was a good Saturday. Next, we'll turn our attention to Sunday's big game in the Premier League, Liverpool 2, Manchester City 2. Michael, you did the Lord's work with a sort of reverse jinx at half-time in this game uh, because you <laughs> tweeted that overall, if anything, you weren't very impressed with the overall quality of the game. I thought the first half was dreadful. I mean, not necessarily just an entertainment value, but the technical quality. I thought that both teams are all over the place. De Bruyne was just doing some actually like ridiculous things, just poor touches, bad passes. I thought the level of first touch from both sides was really poor. And it was quite funny at the end to, you know, after the game to hear so many people saying, oh, it was a, a brilliant game, one of the best I've seen for ages. And it kind of was, but only really the second half. I mean, it goes to show that when they changed from two points to a win to three points to a win, Jimmy Hill's argument was that fans went home remembering the last 20, 30 minutes more than the rest of the game. And therefore, he didn't want teams to be settling for a point. He wanted teams to be going for it. Right. And I think this is a kind of situation that it maybe shows that he's right, because games very rarely have complete intensity over 90 minutes. And if you're going to have a half of great intensity, you're kind of better at, you know builds up to a really good second half. Then you have a first half mm. and it tails off. Um, so yeah, it was a great game, but I can't imagine many people would be watching the first half again. Well, Klopp might watch it back a few times, Tom, to work out what was going on with his team. He, he was not happy with his side's first half performance at all. No, not at all. And it's something that if you look at the kind of XG race chart for the game, the first half, Liverpool are practically flat. I think they had one shot um, in the first half in total. And I think they're averaging... 14 a game of the season so there's a lot of kind of work to do in the second half uh, and City were around 0.8 XG in the first half which wasn't um, amazing by their standards but it was still pretty good given it, it was Liverpool but um, yeah I found kind of Klopp's quote at full time really interesting it feels like it might be one of those that we come back to at certain points in the future um, I mean he, he said that Thank God a football game has two halves. We are really happy about the second half and not so happy about the first half for obvious reasons. We did a lot of things wrong in the first half and City did a lot of things right. I was most happy in my career about the halftime whistle because it's tricky to get into contact with the players to change things. It was obviously never planned that we play like this. We needed halftime and we used halftime and we played a really good second half. So maybe Klopp actually is a, would be a proponent of Julian Nagelsmann's earpiece idea. Uh, and it would have saved him sprinting down the tunnel at halftime. But certainly a game, uh, forgive the cliche, but very much a game of, of two halves, this one. Michael, we don't want them to get in touch with their players during the game. <laughs> That's the whole point. Yeah, it completely links back to what we talked about last week, doesn't it? And was <laughs> similar to uh, Liverpool 3, Brentford 3, in a way, you know, the game was out of control. You know, the, the managers were not having that, exerting that much influence over the proceedings on the pitch, obviously indirectly. But yeah, the, the game kind of got carried away with itself. And, and that's why it was so good. If the managers had had a, a timeout midway through that second half, I think they would have tried to say, right, calm down a bit. Let's mm. have five, ten minutes in a solid structure. But we didn't have that. We we had the, the game just increasing in momentum and it was fantastic so um yeah comes back to what i said last week i don't want the managers to constantly be interfering with things it's funny i remember one one part of the game specifically where it cuts a phil foden i think after a chance or after he'd had possession in in liverpool's final third and he was kind of you know gesturing to his team to calm down but allison restarted the goal kick really quickly and it just doesn't you know even situations like that it doesn't give him enough time for that message to really obviously get across and i don't know how much Phil Foden's voice has weight in those situations, you know, in the heat of heat of battle. 
as it were. But um, yeah, I just thought even the restarts where you can try and catch your breath and, and slow things down were seemingly quite manic as well. Michael, was there any noticeable tactical changes between the first half and the second half? Or was the, the difference in watchability in, in goals, entertainment, just down to execution? Yeah, I mean, Klopp explained in great detail some... I think, Tom, did you feature that in the article that you wrote? Yeah, there's a bit. I don't think I included it in the end, but uh, mainly around um, kind of them being too passive in the first half and needing to, to be a bit more active, especially Henderson and Jones, to kind of clog the midfield in the second. But yeah, I mean, I thought really there was... It was strange because, like I said, I don't think the technical quality was very good in the first half and there's so many poor touches. And usually you associate that pressing. Teams have been pressing much. But I didn't think the first half there was that much pressing in the context of games between these two. When the intensity got higher in the second half, everyone's first touch and their technical ability actually seemed to improve. Yeah. It was almost like they were just jarred into life by the increased... I found it a very strange game. Um, but yeah, definitely a game of two halves. Tom, you wrote a piece about this game, particularly those pesky half spaces and how they were key to the game and all four goals as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was just a, a recurring theme of all of them that they were either scored from or made in those space in the channels between the six yard and the 18 yard box. And I think for both, for City, you can look at James Milner a lot and his kind of positioning and, and, and lack of pace on the turn and allowing Phil Foden to get behind him. And then for, for City, it was more around Jao Cancelo's one-on-one defending and a bit of, of Amarek Laporte's positioning. But yeah, really, it was that kind of the route to goal was very much through those areas and, and both teams capitalised on them uh, really nicely. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Uh, and Michael, while Tom sort of zooming in on this particular 90 minutes, you took this and made a wider point in your piece on The Athletic this week. Uh, all four games, you said, came at Anfield from the wide positions, which now seem the primary battleground in top-level football matches. That seems like an important sentence for a, a tactics writer to write. Uh, talk me through why and how and for how long wide positions have been the primary battleground in these top-level football matches. Well, I suppose around 10 years ago, particularly when Guardiola's uh, Barcelona were dominating European football, it felt all about getting control of the, the centre. I mean, that was Guardiola's main strategy, you know, various tactics, but it was all, always about getting a, basically a fourth player in that zone. He started with three central midfielders. He'd either have Messi coming in there from false nine position or he'd have Iniesta drifting in there when he played from the left. It was all about gaining control there, but... I don't know whether its teams are just so compact and so well organised in the centre of the pitch, but it's quite rare that I'm writing about a game now and I think, well, it was the midfield battle that really um, got the upper hand. I think maybe there's there's also been a shift in terms of, 
I think even 10 years ago, I think everyone was trying to dominate possession. I think there was a real emphasis upon that. And I'm not sure that's the case now. I think teams have accepted that sometimes they're going to be uh, a bit more reactive, a bit more counter-attacking. And in terms of actually creating chances, I think it's, yeah, it's almost shifted towards the flanks. And maybe the two most interesting sides and overachieving sides in European football in the last, what, three years have probably been Ajax Mm -hmm. uh, and Atalanta, who've both gone on great Champions League runs. Ajax were very good at overloading the wide flanks by basically the winger on one side crossing to the other side and almost combining with the other winger. And Atalanta, who I think have been quite revolutionary in their use of rotations down the flanks. It's it's almost not a conventional system. They have centre-back, wing-back, central midfielder and a wide forward who almost can play in, you know, as the move unfolds, they almost can play in any of those positions. And we've seen that from other sides as well. And Bielsa at Leeds focuses a lot on rotations. And yeah, we saw that this weekend. We've seen it a lot from Liverpool, I think, increasingly, um, usually with Henderson, Alexander-Arnold and Salah, you often end up with Alexander-Arnold or Milner for this weekend in a central position. You often end up with Henderson, who's one of the central midfielders, overlapping into space on the outside. And I think teams find it quite difficult to cope with that um, for various reasons. So yeah, I focused on that because I didn't think the game was completely explainable through the tactics because it was just so chaotic in the second half. And, and do you think there's an extent to which the fullbacks now are, we've we've talked about fullbacks so much over the last 18 months on this podcast, but are now at a point where we can consider them in terms of build-up play and in terms of a team's attacking ceiling, fullbacks being almost the key men on that front and particularly whether they are able to to bend to the needs of top-level football and be as good in possession as they need to be now that they are operating in the key battleground of top-level games. I, I think you're right. And I think, um, yeah, that was what the article's on, really. The fact that it was so common to see the fullbacks. Um, making runs inside rather than outside the winger. Mm. I mean, for both Manchester City goals, Carl Walker was making a run as if he wanted to go into the centre-forward uh, position from right back. Um, Liverpool did it a lot with, with Milner being inside. Um, and we know Alexander-Arnold is, is a much better option in terms of creating from that zone. And I also linked it back to what happened um, in the game. I was at Stamford Bridge where Thomas Tuchel was constantly screaming for... Chilwell to push inside and become a midfielder and that kind of dragged uh, Southampton's right winger Theo Walcott inside and allowed um, Hudson-Odoi a lot more space to receive the ball and and get Liveramento in one against one situation so I mean even five six years ago you would have said well that's a really unusual thing to see but it's 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 now really common it's just almost a standard tactic for a lot of the big sides so to see the top three and I would say the three title contenders all doing variations of that fullback making a, a narrow run um, was very interesting at the weekend. I mean, for De Bruyne's equalising goal, as he struck the ball, there's Kyle Walker on... I mean, he's to the left of the penalty spot. That's the run that he's made, uh, which is quite the development for, for Walker, someone whose game has been completely opened up by having Guardiola as his manager, you, you have to think. Uh, and also understandably a very difficult run for any defence to track. You're not going to likely get Mane tracking him all the way to that position, are you? Which means you have to you have to pass on a man and at the speed with which they play now, that's got to be very, very tough. Yeah, and especially the speed that Walker can run at as well. I mean, it was Robertson who ended up following him over and gets a slight touch onto the cutback 
which deflects through to um, De Bruyne. And I, I was trying to make a okay, case. I wonder if Robertson hadn't needed to intercept that, whether he would have been pushing over onto De Bruyne and shut down the shot. I, I, th- I think probably not, to be honest. I think he probably would have been uh, marking Gabriel Jesus on the far side. But uh, yeah, it, it like you say, it just must be so... So difficult to track. And I think also, the, on a different note, the runs Henderson makes. Because when you go from inside to out, I think if you're an opposition central midfielder, there's something within you that doesn't want to be dragged out to the flank. Mm. I think if you're a fullback tracking a run inside, that's the danger zone. You're happy to do that and you can leave the, the flank unoccupied. But central midfielders or centre-backs aren't meant to get dragged out to the flank. It's just a weird... It's almost like anti-gravity. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You're just not meant to be going in that direction. So, uh, yeah, those Henderson runs, I think, are, are really effective. weren't that effective this weekend. He got caught offside once, and I think one of the crosses wasn't very good. But um, it has been quite a quite a regular source of creativity for Liverpool over the last two years, I suppose. Yeah, the, the still of Walker's positioning was what stood out in your piece. And also one of... Liverpool's setup in build-up play down the right-hand side, where you had, and we always talk about football terminology, don't don't we? And and how sometimes uh, you know the game has changed so much that it, it just doesn't seem fitting. You had the wide forward Salah, the narrowest of the the three in shot, then the right back James Milner in between Salah and Henderson, the right-sided central midfield player who. Uh, in a lot of, of build-up attacks for, for Liverpool, was the uh, widest player closest to the touchline. It's it's fascinating to see you break it down like that. And then uh, while the while the Chilwell analysis was probably the most um, the the simplest, I suppose, I did very much enjoy your sentence. What do you call a wing back who is not on the wing or at the back? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a it's a fair question. I don't know what you call that position, but uh, it's a way to see Chilwell doing. I mean, the thing is with Chilwell, he's he's clearly had a difficult few months. I mean, he, he started in the Champions League final, and played pretty well. Mm. I think he played or played a big part in the goal, um, but didn't get. I don't think he got any minutes with England in the Euros, did he? he certainly didn't start any games. I don't think he came on at all. Hasn't played much at the start of this season. Mm. And you think, well, he's he's gone into the team and he's not merely being asked to return to his best, but also to play a completely different role. But I I guess that is the kind of demand that is expected of of players in the modern game, especially from someone like Tuchel, who um can't remember what interview it was I was reading, but you know, he says his his uh his strategy is to make the training sessions so complex that the matches then feel simple. <laughs> I don't think Ben Chilwell found his task that simple on Saturday, but I do like the idea. As an aside, his goal first and foremost was incredible technique to to volley it. It was quite far off the ground to to keep it, you know, I was going to say underneath the bar. It was only just underneath the bar, wasn't it? And into the near post. I mean, watching the highlights back, that was one of the most bizarre goals I've seen certainly this season. In the flesh, Michael, that must have been insane. To be honest, I actually couldn't work out what happened. (laughs) I, 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 I genuinely wasn't sure... Um, at what stage the ball had gone over the line? Because <laughs> I was convinced it was quite a good save. So I was like, maybe the se- it was Aspiliqueta, wasn't it? Who, who it was had the second Lukaku, Aspiliqueta, yeah. Chilwell. The the least likely yeah. of the three to go in, and probably yes. and it didn't look like it had gone in either. It looked like, as you say, an incredible save from McCarthy. Yeah, and also I think lost in that was that it was actually quite a bad miss from Lukaku. <laughs> I just don't know how he didn't score it, but um, yeah, the XG is quite interesting. Tom will be able to say something more about this, but there's different models, but it, presumably it takes the best chance of the three, does it, Tom? So it would be the presumably the 
Lukaku chance rather than Chilwell's shot oh, from a slightly awkward angle. It's got to be a bit more complicated than that, doesn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I think the, I mean, the way that Opta does it is it it adjusts for the rebound. So it you essentially look at what's the probability of not scoring from all those chances in succession, and that goes that kind of like chunk goes into the XG score. Um, but I think the the maximum in the possession is probably the right approach because in this case you get rewarded for missing good chances in the, in the XG <laughs> yeah. front, uh, which isn't what you want, really, is it? Uh, going back to terminology, someone in the comments of, of your piece, Michael, Steve K, uh, is also a big fan of, of semantics in football, but not a big fan of uh, your use or whoever wrote the headlines use of the term underlapping when we're talking about these fullbacks dipping inside. Steve wrote, minor thing, but I've always been annoyed by the term underlapping as it's come to be used. In overlapping, the over part refers to going ahead of nominally more advanced teammates, i.e. in the vertical direction. It was traditionally always done on the outside, but I don't think that is fundamental to the meaning of the term. So underlapping would be an attacker or midfielder dropping deep, and the movement described here, and by the term in general, should be interlapping or something <laughs> else referring to going inside slash narrow. Any thoughts? I'm not sure I agree. I, I'd never considered that. I'm not sure I agree. I think... No, it's a f- rattled. He says he says generally on the outside, but it has to be on the outside. Surely you'd never say overlap if a player made a run inside. If a fullback made a run inside, but, but I sort of see his point, which is that well, if he's right, and I don't know if he is, that the over part of that again, think of it vertically, not using the width of the pitch, is a, a defender running past a midfield player. Do you not think there's some merit yeah. to that point? I agree, but it has to be. I mean, it has to be on the outside. Mm. I don't agree with his claw. Read, read it again. What does it say? Well, the whole thing. <laughs> no, no, the, the bit about how usually on the outside right. or whatever. In overlapping, the over part refers to going ahead of nominally more advanced teammates, i.e., in the vertical direction. It was traditionally always done on the outside, but I don't think that is fundamental to the meaning of the term. Well, no, I think it. I, I disagree with you. I think that is fundamental to the meaning of the term. Right. I get, I'm, I'm up for hearing other listeners' feedback on that. Also, but- also not a big car guy, but um, if you if you overtake someone on in the slow lane and they're in the middle lane, that would be called undertaking. undertaking yeah. So maybe is there a is a point. maybe there is a horizontal aspect to this. That is a very good point. I'm not going to add anything further. Just, just to play devil's advocate, if we go by the Cambridge Dictionary, um, <laughs> it has nothing to do with going outside or inside. Uh, if a football player overlaps, they pass the ball to another member of their team and then run, run beyond that player so that they are ready to receive the ball again. No, I well, I don't agree. I don't think they have to pass the ball to him, do they? Rip it all up. You could, you could. There could be a third player. He could have received the ball from the other flank, and you make an overlapping run. You don't. To be fair, the ball, I can't is, really... irre- the ball is irrelevant in this situation. Surely, we can't bring the Oxford, the Cambridge dictionaries. God, that was close. Uh, tactical <laughs> understanding of the game into question. It's not. It's not their job for me. <laughs> I'll write a letter. <laughs> 
Producer Adonis says, what if you overlapped in Spain where they drive on the other side of the road? <laughs> I, think, I think that's a good place to leave it. Steve K, you are nothing but a disruptor, but thank you for your comment. Um, listener, if you've seen teams doing funky stuff with fullbacks or wingbacks, I think you know who to tweet now. This is something I'm sure we'll talk about more as we dissect uh, big games over the, the rest of the season. Uh, and just lastly on this, uh, Michael, we should say that like so many other modern football tactics trends, uh, this can be traced back to Pep Guardiola, who probably is also the, the godfather of trying to dominate possession and penetrate through the middle. Uh, the hmm. funky use, as I keep saying, of fullbacks probably traces back to Pep as well. Yeah, it probably does to the Alaba and Lam experiment at Bayern, which seemed quite unique at the time. We thought who else is going to have Fullbacks as technically gifted as Alaba and Lam, who I think both have been central midfielders in Bayern's youth system. But uh, it turns out lots of teams do. Um, so yeah, another one to give credit to uh, Guardiola for. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics will get you a third off an annual subscription to The Athletic. You can be Steve K if you sign up to The Athletic today. And reading Tom and Michael's stuff is, is just an added bonus or a chore, depending on your outlook. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, let's ask Tom to do some work here. Tom Warville, you wrote a piece recently about four young talents flourishing early on this season across Europe. You are our Euro data scout for the next 15 minutes or so. A, a bit of added interest and maybe pressure on you here. Uh, Kylian Mbappe spoke to L'Equipe and the quotes surfaced overnight. He says he watches nearly all of Ligue 1. He needs to see his opponents and he knows nearly all the players. I watch also all the big matches abroad. And he was asked which players had caught his eye recently. He said there are quite a few. I'm following Nice closely. And Amin Guiri, he is really not bad. He has imposed himself. You can tell these are translated quotes, can't you? He already did a good season last year and he is in the process of confirming it. Ryan Cherki is also a wonderful talent. He could develop this season. Rhin also have a lot of promising young talents, wingers who break the lines. Aside from that, there are players who I don't think are wow on TV. And then I come across them on the pitch in real life. And I say to myself, wow. They are pretty good. So Mbappe himself is doing some league unscouting, as you are too. Please, can we start with Mohamed Ali Cho of Angers? Great name, good backstory, really fun player. Yeah, he's another one who I'd say is really not bad. I think that's my new, uh, <laughs> my new phrase from this point onwards. Um, Would you say he broke into the first team in the second half of last season and now is in the process of confirming it? Yeah, I perhaps would do. Although I'm not sure how, if you can... Can you break into the first team if you play around three games worth of minutes? I guess mm. you can do. But anyway, yeah, he broke into this first team, I think. Uh, he was 16 years old at the time, and he was a former Everton kind of academy player. Um, and Paddy Boylan's written a, a really good piece kind of detailing who he is and his background and kind of, you know, I guess the circumstances of which why he left Everton because he obviously he looks like a very bright young talent but um, yeah so he plays for Angers um, and they've got actually a really interesting 
kind of group for I guess it's probably one of their better teams for a while this season and they've actually um, invested quite heavily I mean they've got a guy on the wing called Jimmy Cabo who I think was linked to a couple of uh, League One sides kind of pre-Brexit when they could have got a work permit and he's kind of been playing really really well for them quite a small but dynamic winger very very quick um, they've got Mohamed Ali Chow up front they've got Sofiane Bufal who obviously is formerly of Southampton um, and uh, an attacking midfielder called Angelo Fulgini who um, I think we written about previously on the site myself and, and Mark Carey uh, linking him to a potentially a kind of number 10 role for various Premier League sides but um, yeah Cho is 17 years old um, he's quite slight but obviously really well built um, loves to try and pay, take players on and I've always found it interesting players like this who actually play as a striker and not as a winger because you just wouldn't really see that in the Premier League or perhaps even in the in the Championship they'd probably more be used out wide but kind of up front um, he's he's playing pretty well he's got two goals so far I think he's got 4.2 XG in total if we look at the numbers on FB ref which shows that he's got into some great positions not quite found his, his shooting boots yet um, and scored a, a tap in at the weekend after I wrote this article so we got a bit of a another player to Ali to get kind of the uh, the athletic football tactics boost love it I'm just intrigued by the fact that he moved from France to England when he was a week old oh we've all done it I've, I've <laughs> never heard of such an early I haven't been in this situation but I imagine if you've just given birth the last thing you want to do is emigrate to another country but uh I'm very intrigued by that. Elite elite Premier League academies just go younger and younger with their recruitment. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly, when the international break finishes, Friday the 15th of October, PSG against Angers. So maybe, having not been mentioned by Mbappe in L'Equipe, he's one of those players that Mbappe doesn't think are, is wow on TV. And maybe when he comes up against him on the pitch in real life, he might say to himself, wow. He's pretty good. Uh, what about Mohamed Bayo, who plays for Clermont, born and bred, in fact, in Clermont, and wears the number nine? There's always something quite special about that, I think. Not only that, he fired them to promotion last season, Tom. Who is he? What is he? How's he getting on in Ligue 1? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, Bayo joined the academy in 2004 when he was around, I want to say, seven or eight years old. So, yeah, been there since he was a... Um, a kid and yeah he, he was extremely prolific in, in Ligue 2 last season top the scoring charts um, had a very kind of solid output in terms of goals and assists and played a lot of minutes so that, that ticks a lot of boxes and it's always interesting for these players you usually see quite a few players actually from from Mets in the past and various other kind of teams which are very solid um prestigious academies they have great form in in Ligue 2 but can they actually translate it to Ligue, Ligue 1 um, and we've definitely seen that with with Bio so far um, scored at the weekend for his fifth goal of the season um, and quite a few of them have been pretty varied finishes he's definitely more of a kind of poacher type and a couple who came against uh, against Bordeaux early in the season when he was kind of mopping up at set pieces um, the one at the weekend was uh, kind of position himself between the two centre-backs of Florian. There was a nice ball over from the left-hand side and he kind of cut through, carried a bit towards goal and, and finished really clinically past the goalkeeper. So a bit of kind of everything to his game. Um, and yeah, he, he definitely catches the eye just because of his, his age. His XG numbers are really, really good, especially from a promoted side who won't have a ton of quality, probably below average Ligue 1 side. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so he's been really interesting and... Yeah, it's the sort of player you will see probably a lot of paper talk around him come January with uh, a lot of Premier League clubs. 
You wrote Shades of Mauro Icardi, Luis Suarez, Paco Alcacer, which really hammers home the uh, poacher's instinct part of his game. But but perhaps someone who, you know, if we're if we're trying to project to the very top level, uh, might have a fair amount of of development needed to develop a more well-rounded game to fit the the sort of skill set of the elite nines in the in world football. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's something that. He's had to do a little bit of kind of link-up play and looking at some of the data, his, his retention there is not amazing, um, but you can probably get away with not having that uh, at the lower level, you know, lower lower leagues. Um, and he's been linked with, with West Ham, which is interesting because you can definitely see him as kind of a Antonio-like replacement who I don't think his defensive workload's quite there, but some of the chances that they do create, you can imagine him being on the end of them. So, um yeah, you know, for all these players, they're by no means the finished article, mm. um, and uh, but Bio definitely has some some traits which could be really really handy for a few sides. Perhaps playing at the highest level of the four that you picked out, at both individually but certainly in terms of of the club that he plays for is Brahim Diaz Milan's number 10 an interesting one Tom because he had big shoes to fill Chalanolu leaving for Inter Milan and Brahim Diaz not a like for like replacement for Chalanolu but a replacement that we like a lot and is doing very well so far he has shades of, of Jesse Lingard and that's probably the only player that I could really think that has so many overlaps with him both in terms of just he keeps his passes very short um he keeps the ball very well because of that um he kind of buzzes around from a defensive point of view and looks to kind of press and harry and they're probably similar-ish size-wise they're both you know pretty pretty short guys but very mobile um and also just the way they look to shoot i mean lingard uh last season probably a bit more speculative than diaz but if you were to compare kind of diaz's shot map with chanoglu's chanoglu had a real penchant for very difficult long shots and really low quality efforts and Diaz just doesn't have that at all. Um, he's someone who, who really has been a bit more of a, a poacher and mopping up, um, you know, loose second balls in the box and block shots and things like that. So um, yeah, he's been a, an interesting one where Milan haven't gone for a kind of like for like replacement. Uh, they easily could have. I mean, they were linked to to Dominic Soboslai not too long ago, who I think is probably quite close to Channel Glue technically at least, and and look, you know, what he looks to do when on the ball and has that kind of similar shooting profile. Um, but if you go for a like-for-like, like, you're kind of stuck with the same flaws of the play you had in the first place. And with Diaz, you have someone who is far more versatile as a winger. Um, you know, he can play various positions, probably all across that attacking midfield line. And Kalnoglu, you know, Kalnoglu didn't really have the pace for that. So, um, yeah, I think so far, this is Diaz's third season, I think, at uh, Milan or, or second. Or, and it's going on to be a three-year deal with no option at the end but um yeah he looks looks really good and perhaps an outside chance to make the world cup squad next year michael milan back in the champions league for the first time in i want to say eight seasons they've lost their first two games narrowly to liverpool and atletico madrid but they've won six and drawn one of their first seven in Serie A. if someone wanted to find out a lot about ac milan and their start to the season where would be the best place for that <laughs> There's a good article on them uh, up on the site today by James Horncastle. Um, yeah, they look like genuine title challengers. Um, and they've done it so far without Ibrahimovic, who's only played 30 minutes, obviously, scored in that time. Uh, it was his 40th birthday on Sunday as well. So I did an article about him on the site. Some stats, but mainly a, a bit of a profile about his overall career. So, yeah, two articles to check out there. Ibra's had to pull out of the Sweden squad through injury and he's been replaced by one of the top scorers in the championship, England's second tier, Victor Gjokeresh of Coventry City. So there's your 
Ebra replacement Sweden fans. Uh, and last but not least, Tom, in our data scouting across Europe, Odilon Kosunu, who, well, there's always emerging talent in the Bundesliga, that's for sure. And it feels like Leverkusen seem to have a new wonder kid centre-back every season. I, I was under the impression that Tapsoba was still the one to watch there, but you've got another one for us. Yeah, they really do love a kind of big-name centre-back signing. And uh, yeah, I think Tapsoba's been out for a few months now with an ankle ligament injury. And uh, Kasunu's had to really come in, partner with Jonathan Tarr at the back and, and kind of hit the ground running. And they've done really well. I think they're second in the league at the time of recording. Um, but yeah, I, I like a lot about Kasunu. I think he's a very solid one-on-one tackler. Um, I spoke to a, kind of, a couple of Premier League scouts for the piece because some of his his numbers in terms of his aerial win rate and his quality in the air are really low for a centre back, especially someone who's you know six foot two. Uh, you'd expect them to be at least kind of average going for the fee that they went for, um, and that seems to be a flaw in his game. But the kind of both scouts echoed that they think it's it's fixable and he's a bit too eager and going in for certain duels which he he can't win, which I think is always an interesting example of where stats and, and scouts can really go hand in hand and overlap um, but he's got a really nice long passing range he's comfortable carrying the ball out of the back with his feet and he just checks a lot of boxes in terms of what you'd want from a modern centre-back uh, in 2021 so yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him um, improve his performances especially if you know if Leverkusen um, can stay on their current trajectory and mm. get even stronger at the back when Tapso becomes back um, but yeah he as well has been um, he's been really good so far this season. Yeah, I wonder whose minutes Tapsoba will be after, whether it's the stalwart Jonathan Tarr or, or whether it is our friend Kosunu. One to watch anyway, Leverkusen, as you mentioned, have started really well this season. In fact, their next game uh, in the league anyway is against FC Bayern Munich, first v second, and that one you can watch uh, in the UK as well. So uh, if you're interested in watching more of these guys, well, a, a good start after international break will be uh, our friend Mohamed Ali Cho trying to outshine Kylian Mbappe uh, and also Kasunu trying to keep Robert Lewandowski quiet. Uh, thank you so much for that, Tom. I know that uh, you made the point that uh, we are only a few hundred minutes into the season, sample size-wise, and ideally, uh, as a scout, you're going to need a little bit more, but there's still value in flagging players up, and we're very grateful to you for doing that and for talking us through it. So thank you both for joining me on this pod. It's been an enjoyable episode for me anyway on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please do share share on social media we'd love to reach new listeners each week and we've got a hell of an episode for you coming up next week so make sure you are subscribed to this podcast feed check out the athletic you can sign up at theathletic.com forward slash tactics uh, and we look forward to speaking again next week on the athletic football tactics podcast the athletic